It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Uh, well, <clears throat> we started a series, uh, which I'm calling Soul Drift. And uh, I had a conversation with Eric on Tuesday, and we were kind of laughing at the fact that, you know, when we're starting a new series, you know, the first session, you want to, like, cast vision, and you want to, like, kind of give a concept. And so Eric says, you know, how did, how did the first session go? I says, well, well, and it's all perspective. I, I, I get that. And I think as a communicator, we tend to be more critical <laughs> probably than other people. But it was really funny because I says, well, I was trying to cast vision, and I felt like I mumbled the whole time. I, I don't think I even had the vision of what I was trying to, like, I... I you know, I said, once we got into the cistern thing, I, was, I, I really enjoyed that part. Uh, he's like, man, I have a hard time with the vision thing. Like, he goes, he's, it's almost like we just, just need to start the series and not talk about the series. Let's just do the series. I'm like, that's, that's what I want to do. Uh, but I'm going to try to recast the vision. <laughs> and hopefully redeem the last session. <clears throat> so I just want to give a quick thought. And I realized, and part of, the, part of it came out of the fact that I, I was chuckling on the way home. And I went, I didn't even really talk about the whole soul drift concept. Uh, so let me, let me explain where, where the title came from. That's all I really want to do. Uh, have you ever gone to the beach? Uh, it's really fascinating. And I'm talking like the ocean beach. Because, uh, you know, we actually have a, we have a beach technically at Ellerslie, but it's not, it's not a beach. <laughs> it's like just dirt, you know. But... It's interesting, if you've ever been to the ocean and you kind of, you know, you wade out and you're kind of bobbing around and you're just kind of hanging out, it's amazing if you're not paying attention to the shore and you're just kind of getting distracted and you're having fun, just because of the, natu- the, the natural ocean currents, you know, give it a few minutes, it's amazing how far you can drift into the ocean without realizing it. That when you don't have your gaze set upon the shore and something fixed, that it's really easy to find yourself way out in the ocean. And I just find that an interesting parallel to our spiritual lives. That even if we don't intend to, even if we don't desire to be off into the waters, it is really easy in our spiritual lives to slowly drift from the priority. You know, Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus in everything is to be preeminent. That he is to have first place. And we all would agree with that with our voices. We'd all say, yes, amen, praise the Lord, that is true. And yet when you look at modern Christendom, it is seemingly apparent that we have drifted. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, the reality is is we need to turn our gaze back upon Jesus Christ and return to our first love. That, And I brought up Ravenhill last time. There's just something neat about the Tozers and the Ravenhills and and some of these men from recent history that just had an overwhelming burden for the modern church. And they were looking at the trajectory of the church, and they were, in their day, saying, we, we are drifting. And yet I've, I've wondered, <laughs> if some of these guys were alive today, what, what would they say? Because, you know, you read Tozier and the things that he said about in the 50s, 1950s, 60s, in the four, you know, the, you know, that, that realm, and he's just like, our church has a problem. I'm like, the church seems a lot healthier back then than it does right now. And if he saw that as a trajectory, mercy, if Tozer was alive today, he would, 
die. I mean, he just, you know, I mean, he would just, like, he would. And yet, because we're in the middle of it, I don't know if we notice it. That there's this gradual progression of moving away from all things Jesus. And it's that soul drift. And so the reason I even called this series Soul Drift is because I, I, I'm realizing the propensity we have to drift. So what would it look like then to say, Lord, would you search and try my heart and, and would you point out anything in my life where I may have been pulling intentionally or unintentionally from you and can I come back to my first love? Can I come back and not be lukewarm? Can I come back to the fervor and the, the passion that I once had, that you are calling us to. Uh, the church is called to be a pure and spotless bride. And it's interesting, I, I, look, I look at the modern church, and I'm giving a grand generalization, but we are not a pure and spotless bride. We have committed adultery with the world around us. We, we are full of idolatry and selfishness and pampering and comfort, and, and though we give God credence with our language, our lives are not reflecting that, which goes into that idea of behavioral heresy that we talked about last time. So that, that's my heart. Um, my desire is just to awaken all of us, myself included, to the potential of have we drifted? Have we been out in the ocean and just, you know, you, you look up and you're like, whoa, uh, the shore is a mile away and now I've got a long swim. And realizing that the solution is to fix our gaze, our hope, our trust in our Savior and allow him to pull us back to shore. So with that being said, if you have your Bibles, Psalm 24. Uh, what I want to do in this particular session is just give a concept. Uh, I've really pondered about how to approach this idea of idolatry and adultery and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to sound kind of perhaps odd or funny, um, but for most of your guys' semester, uh, and probably for the first third of the whole series, uh, we're probably not even going to be talking about idols. Uh, we're not, that, that's coming, but I want to talk about the standard. I, I want to talk about what we are called to. I want to actually talk about the solution so that I can keep appealing back to it. If we don't know what we have drifted from, and there's, we could talk about idol stuff, but until we actually fix our gaze upon that which is the hope, that which is our calling, then it's really hard to see how we have drifted. And so what I want to do over these next several sessions is actually talk about what we are called to. Because I think the moment we realize what we are called to, it's really easy to see if there's been a gap or a separation or a drift from that calling. And then eventually we'll actually get in and talk about idols. Though probably after you guys have left. <laughs> it's coming though. It's coming. Uh, Psalm 24, I, I love Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 24, verse 3 through 5 says this, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sw sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Uh, if you read all of Psalm 24, it is a great declaration. Uh, it's actually asking some really key questions. And one of the key questions is actually at the very beginning of this. It says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And 
it's talking about Jerusalem, where the presence of the Lord dwells. But do you realize that in a more broad sense, it's talking about the very presence of God? Now, we know that in the New Covenant, we don't have to go down to Jerusalem and you know, bang on the temple to encounter God, that he has come to encounter us, that because of the cross, the veil was torn open and we now have access in, he is now coming out. So it's not so much about the location of the temple, but I still want to emphasize this idea of the very presence of God. Here's the question. Who can ascend into the very presence of the Lord? Who can approach his perfect holiness? And the psalmist gives the answer, and he says, it's he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Uh, depending on your translation, it's interesting. Uh, one of the ways that the phrase, lifting up your soul to falsehood, can be translated is this idea of idols. Uh, for example, in the New King James, it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Or the New Living says, Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who do not worship idols and never tell lies. Or the NIV says, The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So it's interesting when you look at this idea of falsehood, and it's usually translated that like in the ESV and the New American Standard and, and in a few others, it also can be translated this idea of idolatry. So who can ascend into the very presence of God? Who can come and actually be in the very presence? Well, the psalmist says, well, you have to have clean hands and a pure heart, and there should be no falsehood within your life, that you've not given yourselves over to idols. In fact, several scholars have pointed out that what the psalmist is doing is actually referencing back to the Ten Commandments. And when you look at the first of the couple of the Ten Commandments, it's this idea of no idolatry, you don't take the Lord's name in vain, that there should be no lying or deceit in your life. And so there's this idea that if I'm going to approach the very presence of God, I must do so with clean hands, a pure heart, and I cannot just give myself over to the things of this world. That I'm called to represent, if I can use that term, God himself. That, that I am to have a life full of the very presence of God, ironically, so I can approach God. Now, when you look at this idea from Psalm 24, there's an interesting parallel passage in Psalm 15. So let me just read Psalm 15. This is what the psalmist says. A psalm of David O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Again, it's talking about a dwelling place. Who may dwell on your holy hill? And here's the answer again. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money and interest, he, uh, nor takes a bribe against the innocent. He, he who does these things will never be shaken. So again, it's asking that same question, well, who can come and who can dwell? Who, who can approach? Who, who's going to live in the midst of the tent of the Lord? Who can approach his holy presence? Well, it's the one that walks in integrity and righteousness and, and holiness. 
uh, that word, clean hands and a pure heart, uh, the word clean has this great concept. It's this idea of being clean. Not powerful. That's really good. Uh, it's actually this idea of innocent or uh, free from evil or guilt or uh, blameless. It, it's that idea. So the, there's a clean hands. And the word in, in Hebrew actually means your hands. But it gives this idea to the external. It has this idea of actions, the things that you work with your hands. Uh, the word pure it has this idea of no fault or has this idea of a radiance or innocence or moral purity. And interestingly, the heart, when you, when you get into the idea of the heart, it's more than just your blood-pumping organ. Uh, in Hebrew culture, the heart was the very center of the individual. In fact, there's a lot of passages that talk about how your heart thinks. So it actually includes your mind. Uh, it includes your will. It includes your emotions. It includes the very center of your being. And so uh, in, Hebrew, in the Hebrew culture, the Hebrew language, they didn't just... They wouldn't talk about the brain as, as the center of your thinking. The center of your thinking was your heart. The center of your will was your heart. Uh, the center of all of your emotions and your decision-making and uh, the knowledge of good and evil and, and your conscience and all that kind of stuff was the heart. <clears throat> so think about what the psalmist says. Well, who can approach God's presence? Who, who can dwell in the tents of the Lord? Well, it's him or her whose outward actions are clean and whose inward life is pure. That it is the totality of the person that is marked by a purity and a holiness. Uh, Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India, uh, used to quote John Tavler all the time. And, and this, is, this was the quote that she used to quote from John. John Tavler says this, A pure heart is one to which all that is not of God is strange and jarring. Isn't that an interesting quote? In other words, one way you can determine whether or not you're walking in purity is that when you encounter things that are not godly, they actually seem rather strange and jarring. Uh, I don't know about you. There, I used to, when I was a little kid, there's a couple of movies that I really, really loved. I'm not going to tell you which ones they were. <laughs> uh, and for whatever reason, and maybe it's just you know the innocence of being a little kid and all that kind of stuff. But, but I, I used to love these movies. And it was interesting. It was probably, I don't know, a decade ago. I was in my 20s. And I, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's that movie. I loved that as a kid. And I watched it. And the whole I'm like, what on earth? What was I watching? And I, I was actually really deeply concerned. Because I was like, I used to watch that all the time. And it suddenly became weird. Suddenly it was jarring. Suddenly, it was really strange. Do you realize that's actually a good sign for your soul? Where if you start drifting into the culture and you start abide, uh, just taking in the things of this culture, it, it, it's really easy just to be like, well, yeah, it's just a little violence. Yeah, it's just it's a little swearing. Yeah, it's just a little sexuality. Yeah, it's just a little whatever. And we, we start to justify those things in our lives as if it's not that big of a deal. But if you take a season off, and then try to do the same things you've always done, a lot of times it, it, it's a shock to your system. Uh, if, you, if you've decided to take a fast from social media, I don't know if you've ever tried this, but it's like, just take one month and just get off social media. Don't watch the news. 
Don't, don't listen to the, you know, the, the, the stories. Just have freedom for just for one month. And after that month, if you go back into the social media world, there is a lot of things that you would just always, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's kind of fun. Oh, that's cute. That suddenly you're like, what on earth is all this stuff? Because, it's, because you've had some distance, it's now starting to feel a little odd. Wouldn't it be interesting if you can get so tight with Jesus that everything that is not of him would be suddenly strange and jarring to your soul? And this, it doesn't mean you can't be on social media. That doesn't mean you can't watch a movie. It doesn't mean you can't read books. But wouldn't it be phenomenal if, if the movies you watched and the books you read and if you did stuff on social media, it's, it came out of a heart of, of relationship and intimacy? And if it wasn't good and if it wasn't godly, you just kind of, nope. It's like the Philippians 4, 8 passage, think on these things. Wouldn't it be interesting if your mind could be so guarded and protected that the things that you just naturally dwelt upon were the things, it was within the boundaries of Christ. And the things that are outside the boundaries of Christ, you just, you didn't spend time, energy, or thinking on those things. I want to talk about this idea of holiness because really what we're talking about is holiness. Now, I understand that in our modern culture, holiness has received a bad rap. Uh, and, and a lot of circles, holiness is actually like a curse word. You know, it's, like, it's just not a good thing. Because what we've done in, in the modern church, in a, in a lot of circles, is that we've taken holiness and, and we made holiness a list of do's and don'ts. Did you know that biblically, holiness is never a bad thing? Biblically, holiness is always good. Holiness is not about the things you don't get to do. Holiness is about the things you do get to do. Woo! And you could say, well, yeah, but Nathan, if I'm, if I'm being holy, I can't do this. I know. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you can't lie. But when you're walking in holiness, why would you want to? Do you realize that when you live in lies, it gives you a kinked neck? Because you're always having to look over your shoulder and figure out who's watching you to remember what you told them so that you can tell them the right story. Holiness is not about not lying. Holiness is, oh, do you know what you get to do? You get to walk in truth. And you never have to worry about who's listening in. And you never have to worry about the kinked neck kind of stuff because you don't care who's watching your life. You know, the reports are, you know, that supposedly in America, you know, NSA is listening and watching everything we do. So all the text messages and all the phone calls and all, all the websites you're going to are being tracked and recorded. But what if that didn't bother you? I mean, I don't think they should. But I've got nothing to hide. Why? Because I'm walking in truth. Does that make any sense? So you could look at holiness and go, Bummer, look at all these things I don't get to do. Yeah, I, I can't commit adultery. I can't look at pornography. I can't lie. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. But if you, if you, if you in your perspective of holiness is a list of, oh, I don't get to do these things, you have the wrong perspective of holiness. 
Because biblically, holiness is not a negative thing. Holiness is all about a woo! Do you know what I get to do? I get to walk in purity. I get to walk in joy. I get to walk in peace. I get to walk in hope. I get to walk in life. I get to walk in truth. Which is what we all want anyway, isn't it? So if you come from one of those cultures where holiness is a list of things you don't get to do, somehow you need to let God hit a refresh button in your, in your heart, in your mind, to realize that holiness is not a bad thing. Holiness is a really, really good thing. The word holy really just means set apart. It means being different and separated and other than the world around you. God says, I am holy. Therefore, because I am holy, I am calling you to be holy, that you are to be like I am. Here's the question. How on earth are you going to produce holiness? How on earth are you going to live righteously in this world? How on earth are you going to walk in purity and truth and life? Isaiah tells us that the best that you can pull off in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own ability is filthy rags. And if you want a great study, you should look up what that means because that's nasty. And if you don't know what it is, ask Eric. But, <laughs> but it really it has this idea of bloody rags. It's, it's worse than that, but you can, you can study that. That the best that you can pull off, that the best that you can attempt all right, I'm going to be holy. And so you, in your own strength, in your own ability, are going to try to produce holiness. Do you realize that flesh cannot produce holiness? Flesh can only produce flesh. So if the flesh tries to kill the flesh and tries to be holy, it's not going to be holy. It's going to produce more flesh. Do you realize you only have one chance, only one option for holiness? Uh, there was this guy by the name of Moses, and he was on this mountain, and uh, he, he'd been there probably countless times over the course of the 40 years that he was shepherding. But on this particular occasion, as he's up on the mountain, he looks over, and there's this bush that begins to burn. And so he goes to investigate it, and of course, the bush begins to speak and says, Moses. And he says, uh... Yes, bush. And the bush says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. If I was Moses, I would have looked at the bush and said, bush, uh, I was here yesterday. Wasn't holy. I'm here with a lot of sheep. And sheep eat and sheep do other stuff. And this ground is not holy. In fact, there's a whole bunch of dead twigs and leaves and what made the ground holy? God showed up. During the time of Moses, they decide that God calls the Israelites to build an ark. And so men go out and they, they take the wood and then they overlay it with the gold. And interestingly, during the time of David, they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. And you know the story. They, they put it on a cart, which they weren't supposed to do. But as the cart was driving into Jerusalem, one of the ox stumbles, and the ark of the Lord, symbolizing the very presence, was about to fall off. And so Uzzah did what any normal, rational person would do. He reached out to steady the ark to keep it 
from falling. And yet he touches the ark and he dies. But didn't a whole bunch of people touch and put their grubby hands all over the ark when they were making it? So what changed? The presence of God. Do you realize that the only one who is holy in and of himself, he's intrinsically holy, it's God. We are unrighteous. We are unholy. God is not just holy. He is holy, 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 which is really holy. So if he's the only one who is holy and you are unholy, well, what chance do you have to be holy? You don't. There's only one way. There's only one option you have to be holy. You've got to embrace the one who is holy. And it's in the embrace of the one who is holy that that which is unholy can now be made holy. Isn't that phenomenal? This is not, well, will you clean yourself up and would you come to Jesus? This is not, well, you better get your act straight and you better grit your teeth and take cold showers and pull this thing off and in your own grit and determination and your own accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, you be holy. You'll never be holy. The best you can do is unrighteous is unrighteousness. It's, it's filthy rags kind of stuff. But I'm called to holiness. So how am I ever going to be holy? What if the secret to holiness is not you trying to be holy? What if the secret to holiness is you coming and embracing the one who is holy? Because in the embrace of the one who is holy, that which is unholy becomes holy. We need this. We desperately need this. Because you and I cannot live the life that we are called to live in and of ourselves. The only chance that we have, the only way that we can live as a Christian, the only way that we can live as we, were, as we are called to is somehow his overwhelming holiness and righteousness can be ours, but we must embrace him. And it doesn't matter how much unholiness and unrighteousness and filthiness is in your life, he can change that. Do you realize that this has been God's heart and his desire for you since the very beginning? In, in Ephesians chapter 1, I love this passage. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, that God chose you in Jesus before the foundation of the world, that you would be holy and blameless before him. Do you realize that before God ever said, let there be light, you were on his mind. And what was his deep desire for you? To be holy and blameless. And interestingly, being holy and blameless before him, the secret to be, of being holy and blameless before him is contained in the idea of before him. That word before him is this idea of like smack dab in the middle of, it's like standing before the judge and the judge is scrutinizing you. He, he's looking down from his podium and he's looking and he's trying to see if you're holy and blameless. That's one aspect of that. But the flip side of that is it's only when you're standing in his presence Hey, when you're, when you're eyeball to eyeball, when you're in his face, 
that you become holy. So again, the only chance you have to pull this thing off is you've got to get tight with him. But that is his overwhelming desire for you. He wants you to walk in holiness and righteousness and truth. But the only way you can pull that off is you need him. I've read this countless times uh, in different daily thunders and sessions and stuff. But one commentator made this statement. He was referring to the early part of Ephesians and this idea of the fact that believers are called saints. But, but listen to what he says in terms of the early church and the understanding of holiness. He says, in the early church, Christians never had any doubt that they must be different from the world. They, in fact, knew that they must be so different that the probability was that the world would kill them and certainly was that the world would hate them. But the tendency in the modern church has been to play down the difference between the church and the world. We have, in effect, often said to people, well, as long as you live a decent, respectable life, it is quite all right to become a church member and call yourself a Christian. You don't need to be so very different from other people. When in fact, get this, Christians should be easily identifiable in the world. Christ does not take us out of the world, but he does make us different within the world. You've, you've probably heard the statement, we are in the world, but not of the world. And that does make sense. I, I think a better way of saying it is, Christians are in the world, but the world should not be in Christians. And, and we're not talking about creation. We're, we're not talking about the things that God has made. You, please understand that. This world is amazing. This world is beautiful. This world is great. God made it. He called it good. But we're talking about that worldly philosophy, that worldly mindset, that, that depraved, twisted reality of, of, of the world that we live in. That should not be in our lives. Well, what should our lives be marked by? Jesus. His life, his truth, his righteousness, his purity should be easily identifiable in our lives. Or as Ian Thomas says, the only explanation for your life should be Jesus. That when someone looks at you, they should say, I don't understand how you're living. I don't understand how you can walk in purity. I don't understand how you can walk in love. I don't understand how you have joy and peace when it seems like the whole world is going crazy. That's impossible. I know. I mean, you must be a Christian. I am. Can people say that about your life? Are you easily identifiable from the world around you? When someone sees you, they just go, you are not, you're just not like us. Because it is only when you're easily identifiable. It's when you're not living like the rest of the world. It's when you're walking in holiness and purity and righteousness do you realize those are marks of a believer? I, I don't know about you, but we need Jesus. And I don't know what you've trucked in. I don't know what your background is. I don't know the struggles you've had. I don't know the addictions you may be dealing with. But do you realize there is a solution? Would you embrace the one who is holy? One of my favorite meditations around Christmas 
is this idea of the stable. I know, I know we often talk about the manger and the shepherds and you know, the wise men, all this stuff. But one of my favorite concepts to ponder is just this idea of a stable. How we don't actually know where Jesus was born, right? Some say it could have been a shepherd's cave because there's a lot of those in Bethlehem. That makes sense. Uh, it, it could have easily been the bottom floor of someone's house because that's often where they would keep the animals to, that kind of helps keep the rest of the house warm. So whether it was actually in someone's house or whether it was actually in a, you know, a, a separate building called a stable or whether it was one of the shepherd caves, I don't think it actually matters. In fact, if it mattered, I'm presuming God would tell us. And so since we just know that there was no room in the inn, they went out and found, you know, the stable. Do you realize that a stable is the place where the animals live? And I didn't really grow up in an environment with a lot of animals, but if you've ever lived on a farm, and I've visited a farm once. <laughs> I mean, if you ever go to a zoo or if you ever go to a farm, you realize animals are not the cleanest creatures. And so could you imagine, here is the king of the universe being born in a lowly stable. I mean, you would think that the one person who deserves a good hospital, a very clean environment, or a palace to be born in, it should be God. And yet God chose the weakest, most undesirable, filthy location to be born in. It was a stable full of muck and animals and straw and manure and just... And that is a phenomenal picture of our lives. Because he's willing to be born in a place full of muck. That you don't have to clean yourself up for him to be birthed in your life. You don't have to clean the corners. You don't have to get rid of the smells. You don't have to get rid of the... God is willing to be born in a stable known as you. And just as he came in physical form, just as Jesus was literally born in a literal stable, spiritually, the Holy Spirit is willing to come into your life even though your spiritual life is a mucky stable. Isn't that an amazing thought? But here's what's more profound. Uh, we live in a modern culture that says, all right, God, God's going to love you. He, he will forgive you. All oh, that's amazing. And we have this presumption that, okay, God's willing to be birthed in a stable known as you. But as the current culture, it's, and they, they say this without saying it, the idea is, but you can keep on being a stable. Do you realize that's not true? He is willing to be born in a stable known as you. But when he is born in you, you are now a temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul would say. Which means the muck and the mire and the junk and the smells need to leave. And again, it goes back to this idea, it's the embrace of the person. And when you allow the God of the universe to be birthed in you, yes, he is willing to be birthed in a stable known as you, but he will not allow you to remain a stable. He will change and he will transform and he will clean and cleanse and renew because he wants a temple, not a stable. Can I encourage you 
to embrace Jesus? Uh, the great preacher Duncan Campbell said this. Uh, Ravenhill quote, quotes this in his book, Why Revival Terries. But Duncan Campbell said, it's a baptism of holiness, a demonstration of godly living, which is the crying need of our day. Though the world may not know it, what our world actually is craving is holiness. It's godly living. It's purity and righteousness and truth. And our world is looking for, for hope. The world is looking for truth. The world is looking for love. The world is looking for all these things in all the wrong places. And they're thinking that, well, if, if I just have the freedom to do whatever I want, that, that, that'll actually make me happy. That makes you miserable. Well, I can do whatever I want. I have freedom. No, you don't. Because the more you get to do whatever you want to do, the more you're actually in chains. Isn't it funny that the more you walk in holiness and the more he refines your life, even though to the outside world it looks restrictive, it actually brings more and more freedom. It actually brings more and more life. It actually brings more and more joy. Holiness is not a negative. It's actually the very character of our God. And Holiness is what produces the freedom. Holiness produces the joy. Holiness produces the great love that you are craving. And the great need of our day is holiness. Which demands that you embrace God, the one who is holy. So ponder this afresh. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Well, it's he or she who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up their soul to falsehood or idols and has not sworn deceitfully. They shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of their salvation. Would you go after him? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, the great need, not just of our world, not just of our churches, not just of this school, but the great need of our lives is holiness. Lord, could you somehow push a reset button in our hearts and our minds to, to remind us that holiness is not a list of do's and don'ts. Holiness is not a drab. Holiness is not a, oh, bummer. Holiness is not a, oh, I don't get to do these things. Lord, could you somehow refresh our our thought process, to allow us to realize that holiness is a good thing. It's never a negative. In fact, it is holiness that produces the greatest freedom and joy and life and love. But Lord, we, we can't be holy outside of you. The best that we can pull off is filthy rags. So God, I just ask that you would, would you put a burn and a desire within our souls to be holy? Would you set us apart and make us different and other than the world around us? Lord, don't let us justify. Don't, don't, let us, don't let us hide. Lord, could you put your finger on anything and everything in our life that is not of you? And would you begin to make it look strange and jarring to our souls? Lord, I pray that if there are things that we've just grabbed a hold of, if there are affections, addictions, and behaviors and thought processes, that are ruling and controlling, Lord, would you lovingly point those out? 
May we, may we freshly surrender them to the cross. Lord, your desire is that we would be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That we are not to be pushed around by sin. And Lord, there is to be a triumph. We are to look different than the world around us. That the only explanation for our lives is to be you. And Lord, I realize that this is not typically an instantaneous thing. I realize this is not a microwavable solution. That this is a journey. That this, this does take a time as, as you're sanctifying our lives. But Lord, we need to be on that journey. And so Lord, this morning, we just want to freshly come to you and seek and repent and surrender and just cry out that we need you. Lord, thank you that we have the possibility. Thank you that we have the opportunity to be holy. Not out of our own ability, not out of our own wisdom or talent, but we can be holy by embracing you, the one who is holy. Oh, thank you that we don't have to live like the world around us. Lord, we just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.